Psalm 88, uh, 78, 1 through 7 says this, My people, hear my instruction. Listen to the words from my mouth. I will declare wise sayings. I will speak mysteries from the past, things we have heard and known and that our ancestors have passed down to us. We will not hide them from their children, but will tell a future generation the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, his might and the wondrous works he has performed. He established a testimony in Jacob and set up a law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children, so that a future generation, children yet to be born, might know. They were to, ra- to rise and tell their children so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's works, but keep his commands. Let's go ahead and take our seats. I want to read another verse to you out of um, Corinthians that we've been reading over the last few weeks that kind of ties into this. It says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2. A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. So as we look at Psalm 78, we are being reminded that managing these mysteries of God is due in large part to how we tell the story of God. So you can just take the weight off because maybe you felt like being a manager of the mystery of God sounded like a little too overwhelming. Anyone? (laughs) It's really just about continuing to tell God's story. Continuing to tell people, tell the next generation about what God has done. So today, with that, I want to tell you the title of my message is The Power of Story. Let's go ahead and pray before we get started. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day, God. We thank you for a place we can come and worship you freely, Father. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is already in our midst and that we can uh, worship and enjoy each other in fellowship, God. We just pray in Jesus' name for this message Lord, that we would, one, just walk away feeling stirred up and encouraged to engage the story that you are telling and that you are writing, God. And we just pray that your words would come through in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Does anyone have uh, some crazy old family stories? Like things that have been passed down from generation to generation that you're like, did that really happen? It's been, maybe it's a little spun out. You know, like I remember being told that my great-grandparents walked through like two feet of snow to get to school one mile there and back in their one pair of shoes they had when I was asking for new shoes. That's what I was told, right? It's like, hey, uh, you know, this is what happened. And I'm like, I don't know that my grand. we lived in Washington. I don't think that happened, right? (laughs) It didn't snow that much. But we've been passed down some stories, right, from generations before us. Maybe there's stories of veterans in your um, home and, and people who have gone to war. Maybe there's stories of uh, people's testimonies about how they came to Jesus years ago. Whatever it is, we all have some, some good and some bad family stories, right? Well, I have one that always stuck out to me, and it's not just one. It's really my dad's, like, testimony, but uh, he said I could share it with you, so I'm going to. So my dad, uh, in ninth grade, he, he dropped out of high school, and after that, it was pretty much like a downhill spiral into drugs and alcohol abuse. And so at one point, he ends up uh, running away from home, going to California, and almost dying of overdose. So he would tell us these stories about his drug use when we were really young. And I know that it was to, like, instill fear, and it worked, right? I was like, okay, I got it. I won't do that. And I can tell you, honestly, the power of his story and his testimony really did keep me off drugs, I was like, I don't need to go there. You went there for me. We're good, you know? <laughs> like, and so the reality is, is there's power in our stories. They can actually change the tra- trajectory of other people's lives. 
So today, as we dig into this, I want to share about that, that power and know to, know, tell you that the reality is, is that we're all called to be storytellers. So I don't know about you, but I am, don't feel like I'm a great storyteller. I don't feel like I have that art down. We all know that Jason, my husband, Pastor Jason, has the art of storytelling down, okay? I can tell you that most of the story that he's telling is true. There's also potentially a little bit extra, right? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bullet point the story for you, and there's not going to be any extra. I'm probably going to forget some main points, right? That's the difference between him and I. So when I hear that I'm supposed to be a storyteller, it makes me intimidated. Even when I get up to speak, I think about, because I compare myself sometimes, and especially in the past, to my husband and his excellent storytelling abilities. And I'm like, I'm just not a storyteller. That's not my skill set. And yet I don't get to run away from the fact that God has told each of us to be storytellers, to tell people about the faithfulness of God. So I'm just going to encourage you that he's still using me even though I can't tell stories. So he can use you if you can't tell stories, okay? Throughout the Bible, we see several places where he speaks to this idea of telling the story. And this is honestly just a very few amount of verses compared to all the times where we are commanded to tell the next generation about God. So let's look at some of them. Deuteronomy 6, 6 or 7 says this, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Psalm 145.4 says this, One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. Joel 1.3 says, Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. Isaiah 38.19, The living, the living, they praise you. As I am doing today, parents, tell their children about your faithfulness. Mark 16, 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Acts 1, 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Witness come, Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then this one in Romans reminds us that if we don't tell, that people won't know. It says this in Romans 10, 14 through 15, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching it to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I want to tell you that if you're a Christ follower today, you are called to be one of the people who brings good news. You're anointed and you're appointed for such a time as this to bring the good news, okay? So telling is how the character and attributes of God stay in generations. It's how they know who God is. When we speak of who God is, that's how the next generation will know. Telling is how the gospel has continued to spread throughout every tribe and every tongue for over 2,000 years. And that's just the Jesus part of the gospel. That's not the years before that of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. It's how you have the Bible in your hands today. Some of you have a physical Bible. Some of you have a technological Bible. You have it because the story has been told over and over again. Finally, some people decided to slowly put it together. They pulled together the manuscripts. They pulled together the, you know, scrolls. They pulled it all together to write and compile this Bible. So the story is powerful. You guys ready for five truths about how the story is powerful? All right. Number one is this. The story you tell yourself is the story you will tell them. The story you tell yourself is the story you will tell them. 
Let's look at the Israelites who have fled Egypt and are now in the desert. So the Israelites were in Egypt for 400 years as slaves. And God says, okay, I'm going to bring my people out of Egypt and take them to a promised land. So now they're out of Egypt, and they've been out of Egypt for um, just over a year and like a quarter, okay? So we see in Numbers this that Israel, after having a whole year of quail and manna literally come out of nowhere, is complaining about what their situation looks like. It says this in Numbers 11, 4 through 9. The riffraff, which by the way, you don't want to be called ever. I'm like, don't write that about me in my later days. Uh, the riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at but this manna. Such spoiled children, right? The manna resembled coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of bedlam. The people walked around and gathered it. They ground it in a grounded on a pair of grinding stones and crushed it in a mortar, a mortar, then boiled it in a cooking pot and shaped it into cakes. It tasted like a pastry cooked with the finest oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. It's like that he's basically saying that they ate donuts every day. That's what it sounded like. Sweet, finest oil, this delicious meal provided you from heaven, and they're complaining about it. Now, here's the reality. Like, the Israelites hadn't not seen God do some things, okay? In Exodus 14, we see that God literally parts the Red Sea for over 2 million Israelites to walk in dry ground to escape the Egyptians. And then, after they all get across, which I'm sure would take, like, a lot of days to get 2 million across, they ended up, he closes the water again and takes out most of the Egyptians. So it's not like they hadn't seen miracles, then they see the miracle of like, oh, God, we have no water. I mean, after three days, you should have water. You could die without it. So like they were probably pretty desperate in this moment. And there's no water in sight. They're in a desert. And God shows Moses a tree and says, put that tree in the water, and the water becomes pure. So the Israelites see yet another miracle. And then they're hungry, as you would be after 45 days of traveling in the desert. And most of your resources have probably been eaten up, whatever you could take from Egypt. And they're saying, God, God, give us food. So God rains down quail and manna from heaven. And then for a, after a year of seeing God's miracles, two times a day, these Israelites are going to cry out and be like all grumbly that it's not good enough still. Does that sound like anyone's story in the room maybe? <laughs> this should be something we learn from, but instead it's like, oh, actually, yeah, I can get to that place sometimes. I can get to that place of grumbling and forgetting what God has done. And here's why I say all of this. We can either focus on God's faithfulness or our perception of his failing us. We can focus on his faithfulness or the perception that we have that he's actually failing us because we're not seeing the miracle the way we want to see the miracle. It's not like God stopped providing them food. He still provided. They just wanted steak instead of quail. Now I hear, I understand, right? Like, good, some fresh fish. That sounds great. You're in the desert and no longer a slave. Like you got to put into perspective that God's faithfulness is still with you, even if it's been a long journey. And so I think for some of us, we got to ask ourselves, am I still seeing the miracles of God? Am I still seeing what he's doing, even if things look a little mundane? You know, I used to struggle with my testimony because 
we would have testimony time in youth. And for those of you who have a background where testimonies like kind of trigger something in you, that just means story, okay? We're just telling our story. So the reality is we would do this in youth ministry. We would tell our testimony. And I would just not ever want to be picked. Because remember, I told you I stayed off drugs. So I didn't feel like I had a testimony. <laughs> I was like, I don't have anything dramatic to say. Like, literally, my life is basic, you know? I literally have just uh, known God, and that's it. But I realized further down the road as I was maturing in my relationship with Jesus that that was actually a major testimony, that I had, that I had experienced God's faithfulness and stayed faithful to him, even in, like, the mundane moments of life. I didn't need any drama trauma in order to, like, get there with Jesus. I knew Jesus. And that is a testimony to his faithfulness, right? But the reality is that sometimes we don't realize what he's done. Even in the most basic of ways, we don't tell that story. We often can tell the story that isn't exactly how we want it to go, so now we're mad at God. But the stories that we choose to tell and how we tell them is what the next generation is going to believe about God. So it's extremely important to speak life about God, to speak about his faithfulness, to speak about his goodness, even when it's not feeling good, to know that he is faithful because he sees something a lot bigger than I see in that moment. In our home, uh, when we're disappointed in something, we don't really, like, keep it to ourselves. We're real good about communicating all the things, happy or sad, all the things. And so, um, and, and we're okay with doing that in front of our kids because it's a lesson for them and for us usually <laughs> about, oh, I guess saying that in front of them isn't appropriate yet. So like, well, we learned a lesson there, okay? Um, but we, so we talk about things that disappoint us. Uh, sometimes it's a situation like, and sometimes it's a person, right? And we have to be more cautious because they are growing up and we have realized that when we say stuff out loud, the few, a few days later, we hear them regurgitating similar information, right? And they all of a sudden have feelings about something that they really shouldn't even care about. And so the reality is, is that what we say, they're going to pick up on, right? So if I say I hate broccoli, the likelihood of my children trying broccoli is going to be slim to none because they trust me. They trust that broccoli is disgusting. They don't need to go try it because they heard me say it. Just like I don't need to go try drugs because I heard it was bad, right? Like they, they learn. They also pick up on the good things, they pick up on like, oh, man, mom was so sad, but she just like turned on worship music and then she just experienced God moving and then she reminded me that God is faithful or like when I'm worried, I don't have to be afraid. She gave me that verse and I don't have to be afraid. And so they pick up on these things. We just got to choose how we're going to say it, what we're going to say about our situations, about our God. We have to realize that there is massive power in the tongue. James 3, 5 through 6 says this, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest it's set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and, it, it, and is itself set on fire by hell. The tongue sets the course of our lives, and therefore the lives often of those around us. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Anybody good at the not unwholesome talk coming out of your mouth? A few of you. Good job. <laughs> the rest of us are still being sanctified. <laughs> 
See, when helpful, it's benefits, the tongue benefits those who are listening, right? What we say benefits those who are listening. Proverbs 18.21 says that the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. It has the power of life and death. So I want to ask you this question today. What story is your tongue telling? What story is your tongue telling? And therefore, what are the people hearing going to pick up about who God is? Okay, number two. The story you tell keeps your faith in God alive. Romans 10, 17 says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing and the, the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So one of my life messages, I think, is that God is faithful. Ever since I was like a young child and I've been through hard things, I just always knew that God was faithful. And you know what? I didn't like go through like just a super easy peasy road. I had lots of hard moments. And the reality is, is that God's faithfulness was not that he like just plucked me on out of there, but rather that he was with me in the middle of it. And sometimes we got to realize that just because you're in the middle of something really hard doesn't mean God is not faithful. And it doesn't mean that he's not going to use that moment. He does use it. He's so good. And you can look back and go like, you did keep me from some things. You did protect me from some things. Sometimes you can't see it when we're in the middle of it, but God is faithful. Often we easily forget his faithfulness, faithfulness though, right? When he, we're in the middle of it, we're like, oh, yeah, you did part the Red Sea for me. I forgot about that, God, like such a big miracle, two walls of water just on either side of all these Israelites, but I forgot, right? <laughs> we're in the middle of it. We forget the, like, saving, life-saving cross that Jesus died on and ended up giving us everything we could ever need or desire in eternity in and through him. And we forget about those things. We forget about the moments where he literally saved our lives. I have a few of those moments I want to say out loud, hopefully to stir up some faith for you, but also that because this just stirs up my faith, like we're talking about, right? As I say out loud the things that God has done. So here's one thing God's done. He's rescued me from a life, potentially life-harming and threatening situation when I was really young. I had this uh, neighbor who drove out of their um, driveway, and I was riding my tricycle behind them. And normally they drive out of the driveway extremely fast and with their music turned cranked up so they can't hear anything. Well, I'm behind her. She doesn't see me. And my tricycle goes up in the air, and the wheel of the uh, car is right here as my dad is screaming, stop. And to me, I have always looked at that moment as God's faithfulness saying Erica has a story. Erica is meant to be a part of this world because it could have gone really badly. It could have gone the other way if she would have kept her music up too loud. She may not have noticed until it was too late. So there's things like that. That was a miracle in my life that has, honestly, that story has been passed down to me from my parents. I wasn't, I was there, but I was like three. So I don't remember the details. And the reality is I still know that that was a moment where God said, no, you don't, you don't get to take her out yet, Right? The next thing I remember and I feel like God was so faithful is in is that every time I wanted to go on a missions trip since I was 12 years old, he provided a way. At 12 years old, I said, I'm supposed to go on that missions trip to Guatemala. And my parents said, okay, they sent me without them. This, like, I probably wouldn't do this today, but they, were, they didn't know any better. It's totally fine. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we were with my pastor. We had some good people around us. But, um, and I was like, I think it was probably a $1,200 trip. And I'm 12 years old, and I'm going to have to believe God for this money and this finance. And this is how good God is. When we say, God, I know that you're asking me to do this, and we're obedient, 
and we partner it with him in the journey, he provides the way. And he did that every single time when I was young. I've been to Australia. I have been to Ireland. I have been to New Zealand. I have been to China. Not to brag. I've just been to all these places. And God provided the way every time. And sometimes in abundance where I could help other people. So he is so faithful, right? Calling us to plant this church in Utah. He's so faithful. Look at all you. You're here. Way to be here. But when he did that, he also called nine other families out of Phoenix and into Utah. And he provided every single thing we could possibly need. Even when we had to stretch a little bit, even when we had to believe in faith for the next provision, he provided. He made a space for us to start the well in a high school here in Utah. And some of you, if you came from the South or California, think that's just normal. It's not normal in Utah. People, and we didn't know that it wasn't normal because we just thought we were in Phoenix. That was normal in Phoenix. And uh, people would tell us, like, what do you mean you're in a high school? How'd you do that? How'd you get in? I'm like, we just asked. And the reality is that God opened the door, right? It was a miracle we didn't even know we were looking for. He brought people to rally around the mission of reaching people in Utah for Christ's glory. And he's given us the ability to purchase a building, which is literally right there. <laughs> After continued growth, and in a couple weeks, he's going to give us the ability to remodel that building in Jesus' name. So these are just a few things that I have seen like God do, like so few. I have books that I could write basically on God's faithfulness in just my life and in the lives of those who I love and have seen God work. The reality is that I would hope that your faith is stirred by being being able to say, like, this has happened in my life. God is this good, but also my faith is stirred because of how good God has been and how faithful he is. Amen? So over the coming weeks, I want to encourage you to write down some of the things you've seen God do in your life. And listen, nothing is too small. Sometimes we have to start with really small things, and they lead us into the, like, oh, yeah, and then that turned into that, and then God did that. We just have to start writing it down. We have to start remembering. And then I want to encourage you to tell somebody about it. I want to encourage you to sit with maybe your son or your daughter or your father or your mother or your grandpa or your friend at, at work and just be like, listen, you have to listen to all this even if you don't know Jesus. So I was just told to tell somebody and you're the closest person, so we're doing it. <laughs> I want to encourage you to share that with someone, okay? Number three, the story you tell will outlive you. The story you tell will outlive you. So one thing we at The Well are becoming increasingly more passionate about is the next generation. And, you know, some of you walk in the room and you're like, there's so many next generation in here. And you're like, where do I belong? You belong here. We need every single person here. Listen, somebody is older than somebody in this space, right? And if you're not older than somebody in this space, you're older than somebody over in the kids' space. So we all have something to be involved in and connected to here at The Well. And we all need to start thinking about the next generation. As an 11-year-old church, we're already thinking about 30 years from now. Like one day we will pass this church on to somebody else. And they're going to be younger than us at that time. And they're going to be called and appointed for this season to take on this place. And we want to be able to hand them something that is uh, just prepared for them, right? That is ready and that is vibrant and life-giving. And so we have to continually be thinking about the next. We can't just think about today. Our misnomer is the idea that we don't need an older generation to do that, that we could just, like, do it on our own. And that's so harmful to the global church body. 
Listen, if you're older than somebody, you're needed. You're needed for them. Okay, I want to encourage you with that. We need everyone to continue telling the gospel story so that the children yet to be born, as we read in seven, uh, Psalm 78, 6, will know about God's faithfulness. I heard this incredible statistic this last week when we were in Florida um, that could encourage some of you grandparents or soon-to-be grandparents in the room, and it is this, that there is almost a 0% chance that a child who has had an active grandparent in their life will ever commit suicide. Isn't that incredible? A 0% chance. Like when you think as a grandparent, I got nothing left to give, that is a lie of the devil, literally. Because what you do for that child, that grandchild, absolutely matters. Being an active participant in their life is necessary and needed. But here's what I think about. I think about all the children of the faith in the room. I think about the babies in the room who've just said yes to Jesus. And I think, what would happen to those who've just said yes to Jesus if a spiritual mother or father or grandfather or grandmother doesn't step up and encourage them, doesn't step up and engage in their life? Are we allowing them to be in a position that they might commit spiritual suicide? So it's important for us to realize that what we do now matters in the lives of the generations around us. That some of you are called to be spiritual fathers over in our kids' ministry to kids who don't have any father. Some of you are called to adopt young adults who don't know what they're doing, right? It's okay that you don't know what you're doing. You shouldn't. You need someone ahead of you to tell you, that's dumb. Don't do that, okay? Because we all know we don't listen to our parents at that age. You need other people to come around your children. I want other people around my children. I need other people around my children because my voice may not always be as potent. Potent. This is the end, the last service. The words are gone. (laughs) I want to do my best. Um, I need potency around them because mine, my potency may not last forever. I want it to and I hope it will, but The reality is we need other people to surround us, right? And I want to encourage those of you who are younger than somebody, don't be all like thinking you know it all and not go ask, you know, someone ahead of you, how did you do this? I want to be good at that. I want to be a successful mother. I want to be a successful friend. I want to be successful in my dating relationship. I want to know how not to mess up this part of my life. How did you do that? We need each other, amen? All right, so let's look at... uh, at David, as we were kind of prayerfully stretching ourselves and believing for this legacy offering happening on March 3rd, I want us to keep considering that what we are going to invest in is going to outlive us. Amen? So David, in uh, Chronicles, we see that he desperately wants to build the temple of God. He wants to rebuild the house of God, and he wants to make a place where he, the, the Lord can dwell. And so it's an extreme passion of his, and then God tells him, you're not going to be the one to build it. And David's like, oh, cool. It's really, like, he's super passionate about this. And God's like, no, it's not going to be you. I'm going to actually give it to one of your sons. And I'm going to, like, put them in such a place of success. Their kingdom is going to be mightier than yours. Their kingdom is going to reflect me. I'm going to have them do it. And he tells David, you've had too much blood and war on your hands. I need this to happen in a time of peace. So David, instead of going, okay, well, I guess I'll just sit here and wait to die, That's something that can happen sometimes, right? We just go, I guess I'm out. Instead of going, okay, that's, that's, then I can prepare. That's what David does. So let's look at 1 Chronicles 22. He says this. 
it says this. So David gave orders to gather the resident aliens that were in the land of Israel, and he appointed stonecutters to cut finished stones for building God's house. David supplied a great deal of iron to make the nails for the doors and of the gates and for the fittings, together with an immeasurable quantity of bronze. I want us to hear that. Immeasurable. David had too much. They couldn't count how much he had in preparation for this build. I believe that God wants to do immeasurable. Like, I believe that we're like just at the beginning of the vision that God has for this valley. I believe that there's campuses and a building in our future. And I believe that God just might do it all at once, <laughs> not to freak everyone out. I just, I don't want us to be surprised when immeasurable comes and we're not ready for it. I think we need to just be ready, okay? So immeasurable and innumerable cedar logs. Yes, be ready, go. <laughs> because the Sidonians and Tyrians had brought a large quantity of cedar logs to David. David said, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is, is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly great and famous and glorious in all the lands. Therefore, I will make provision for it. So David made lavish preparations for it before his death. We literally are seeing multi-generational ministry here where David says, I'm not choosing to leave the next generation in poverty. I'm choosing them to stay in provision and an inheritance and to walk into a glorious moment. Like Solomon didn't have to try to do a building campaign. Praise the Lord. I want to be the one that receives that inheritance, you know? Like, I don't want to have to be the one that's always having to be like, okay, everyone, let's bring all the resource. David did that work. He set Solomon up for such success. And we are in a generation that for, has forgotten about the inheritance. We have forgotten that it's actually our responsibility to leave the next generation in a place of health and vibrancy, not to leave them in a place of poverty. I've sadly heard too many stories where kids are having to take care of the debts of their parents. And I don't believe that's what we were called to do. And we as a church are not going to do that. We are going to leave this place. We're going to outlive this place and leave it to the next generation in a place of health and wealth and provision and everything that they need. Amen? So to be a 100-year church, we have to think past today and realize that our contribution to the story and the story that God is weaving will outlive us. John Piper says this, we're not responsible for the generation that went before us. Aren't you thankful? <laughs> but we are responsible for the one that comes after us. This is legacy. Number four is this. The story you tell can be one of participation or observation. The story you tell can be one of participation or observation. The greatest story is the one that you played a part in. While we can watch each other's stories unfold and even tell others about it, there's something to be said about the story that you were involved in. So I think about the Super Bowl. Okay, most of us watch the Super Bowl, right? Some of you, 49ers, they're very quiet today. <laughs> some Kansas City, some Usha. There, I knew, I knew it. Some Taylor Swift, <laughs> right? And some commercials. Anybody for the commercials? Okay. So we all participated in some way, very likely, right? But the reality is, is that no one is going to be able to tell the story quite like Travis Kelsey because he was in the game all the way in. 
he was in deep, so deep. He was invested so much. He yelled at his coach. Okay. Like don't, I don't encourage that. But the reality is, is like he played the game. He sweated out. He ran it out. He got tackled or hurt or tackled other people. I don't even know what position he plays, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's on the defense, but am I right? Tell me, tell me I'm, oh my gosh. I was there for Usher. I told you. <laughs> Obviously. Okay. Moving on. Anyway, <laughs> the reality is his story is going to come with so much greater conviction and enthusiasm because he was playing the game. Whereas Taylor Swift is going to be like, oh, it's so good. Like, he did this, and then he did that. And then on defense, I mean offense, he did that, right? Like, <laughs> but the story is going to be totally different and not like, yeah, you just watched it, right? So here's another example. Friday night. You guys remember... Um, a couple months ago when we didn't have a stove for Christmas. It was broken and um, we had like carbon monoxide leaking and all this. So they finally replaced our stove on Thursday. Brand new, brand new stove, supposedly. Um, and absolutely no flaws, supposedly. Well, I go on Friday to um, bake some bread and I like literally turn on the stove, get it preheated and walk just to the other side of the kitchen and then, like, I'm doing something for a second, look back, and there's just smoke billowing out of the stove. Which normally, brand new stove, like, it's going to have some smell and stuff because you've got to cook through it. But there's also fire dripping from under the stove. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, taking this bowl of water and trying to, like, splash it underneath the thing. Well, it's not going out. So then I click off the um, oven and it's, I'm still doing this, and it's not going out. So I, like, screaming for Jason to hurry up and get into the kitchen. He has no idea what, what's going on because he was not feeling well and laying in bed. And so I'm like, Jason, you have to come out here, you know. And then he's like, so he's there. He opens the stove. It's still on fire, and he's just looking at it for, like, 10 seconds. He's like, I think we should call 911. And then it's <laughs> like, okay. So I call 911. And I'm calling and I'm talking to them on the phone and she's saying something and all I'm saying is my stove is on fire. And she's like, I need your address. And I'm like, my stove is on fire. And I'm like, Eliana, get out of the house. And she's like, I need your address, ma'am. And I'm like, you should know my address. Like you have my phone number. It's on, it's like public, you know? Anyway, I finally tell her part of my address and she's like, I still need the rest of your address. And I'm like, finally tell her the whole address. She gets, she goes, okay, everyone needs to get out of the house. So we get everyone out of the house and, uh, the stove is turned off, so eventually it does on its own die out, but we're out of the house, so we don't know this. And then I'm, like, piling the two kids that are home in the truck because I think, oh, it's so cold out here, and they don't have shoes on, and they're, like, half-dressed, so I should probably put them in the truck and leave the truck on and keep it warm. And then I'm, like, I probably need to pull the truck away from the house because this is a gas a stove. So on a gas stove, if it keeps burning, it's going to blow up. This is my thought. I don't know if this happens in real life. Jason tells me that there's a security thing that it doesn't do that, but in the moment, you're not thinking about that. You're just trying not to die. So, <laughs> so we pull kids in the truck, uh, and I put, I pull the truck out of the driveway and like pull it up to like our mailbox and sidewalk. And I'm trying to get it straight, which is why I don't know why that's so important at that time. So in an effort to get it straight, I run into the concrete mailbox. Right. It's great. You know what Jason says? He comes out. He's like, are you serious? I'm like, are you serious? The house is on fire. How dare you even say anything about me driving right now? So, I'm a storyteller because I was in this one. Yeah, that's probably true. So, these are the things I'll always remember, like how he criticized my driving. 
when there's a fire. Anyway, so the police come, and then I hear all these sirens. So many sirens. And this has happened already twice because of the carbon monoxide thing. So our neighbors just are like, what is happening at your house every day? And so literally my neighbor texts me. He's like, is your stove again? <laughs> is it your stove? And I was like, yeah, but this time it's new and it's a fire. Anyway, so they come and I ask the police officer because they're there first. I'm like, are all those sirens for our house? He's like, yes. And I'm like, why? He's like, well, better to be safe than sorry. So luckily we weren't sorry. We were safe. But anyway, so we had the, this whole experience. Our house did not burn down. Um, one like floor, you know, there's fire on the floor a little bit and then the stove, but we're all good. Everybody's safe. But here's the thing. So I tell that intricate story because I was there. The story I pass on to her is much shorter than all that, right? Like, so I call mom and dad an hour later. My dad's like angry because I didn't call like that second. I'm like, I mean, <laughs> fire. Anyway, but she's going to go tell the story to her friends, TJ and Marilyn, and TJ and Marilyn are going to be upset and frustrated. TJ's now offered to, like, pretend he's my lawyer to these people, and I might take him up on it. Um, <laughs> but they're, like, frustrated, but they weren't in the story. So while they can pass on the story, and we're called to do that, right? That's how this Bible was created, because generation after generation, even when they weren't in the story, they believed the story, right? So they trust the story I've told them. And they can pass on the story, but with the conviction and the excitement and enthusiasm of which I just told you the story, they're not going to be able to do that. So the reality is, is that we're called to be a part of the story so that we can tell the story with conviction and enthusiasm of the faithfulness of God. And the reality is, is every single one of us has experienced the faithfulness of God in some way in our lives and in multiple ways when you slow down to think about it. Right? Some of you are alive today and you should not be alive. Right? Some of you have made some terrible mistakes. Not me, though, because I didn't do drugs. Okay? <laughs> but some of you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sorry. It just seemed like an open door. <laughs> but the reality is some of us have made really, you know, terrible mistakes where we know that it could have gone so badly. I realized with the stove situation that if I would have done what any normal person cooking does, walk away as the stove preheats, our house would have been up in flames. Literally, all I had to do is go downstairs, do some laundry, go into the bedroom and like do whatever, you know, like go do something else, which would have been absolutely normal. So my story is one of God's faithfulness. Like I'm not naive to think that I was just smart enough to turn the oven off. I'm not naive to think that I was just smart enough to be in the room. I know that the reality is that I didn't go anywhere else. And that God ultimately did protect our home and our family. And Right? Sometimes you got to just start putting into perspective the things that God has done in your life and actually giving him credit for your life. Right? Okay, that was number four. I think that was number four. Okay, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 says this. Do, not run, do, not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets a prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. We're meant to be competitors. We're meant to run in the race. We're meant to be a part. We're not meant to be onlookers. Amen? All right, the last one is this, and our team can come up. The story creates an invitation. 
the story of God is always an invitation. First of all, it's an invitation to know God through his son Jesus. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved you, God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's first an invitation for you to have eternal life and to know God. It's then an invitation to become a part of the story that God is weaving. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God did not just drop his son here 2,000 years ago to die on the cross so that you could just sit in stillness and wait for his next arrival. He actually created moments for you to be a part of the story. Just like David created a moment for Solomon. He gave every single provision for Solomon to build. And God has done the same thing for you. There are things that you are called to do that only you are called to do. There are people that you are called into the lives of that only you are called into their lives of. There are moments that God has set apart just for you to know that you're supposed to be a part of the story. There are people that I was able to encourage in Guatemala that God set aside just for this 12-year-old girl to participate in when he said, hey, you're to go. We're called to be part of the story, and God has already prepared for you to engage in it. So as we close, I want to encourage you with this few things that I want you to think about and maybe take your next step in. The first is this. If you've not said yes to Jesus, make that choice today to make him Lord and Savior of your life. This is your opportunity. And today you could leave here and you could write down that today I said yes to Jesus and the faithfulness of God has been shown in my life today. He met me at the well in Utah. And then you know what's going to happen? You're going to sit in that for a few minutes, and you're going to realize he showed up in a lot of other ways before this moment. You're going to see that he's already been working long before you were ready for it. And then if you've forgotten what God has done for you, I want to encourage you to take time to remember and write it all down. Read it again and again. And you know what I know is as you start doing that, God will bring other things to your mind. Remember this? Remember that? Then you're going to have a hard time not finding something to be thankful for, right? And then lastly, I want all of us to prayerfully consider how God wants you to engage in this particular part of the story at the well. The one where a church in Sandy, Utah buys a property and makes it a house of worship for generations to come. Amen? Amen. Well, as we prepare to leave today, we do want to give an opportunity for those of you who have not yet said yes to Jesus to do so today. This is one of our most important parts of our service. So I want to encourage you today, if you're here and you're like, I feel like the Lord is just stirring up something in me. I feel like I'm here because he brought me here today. I feel like I need to know Jesus. I want to encourage you to say this prayer together with us. We're all going to say it together at the same time. You're going to repeat it after me. And then I'm going to ask you to boldly, with our eyes closed and head down, tell us that you said yes to Jesus today by raising your hand. Then I want to just encourage all of us to stay in our seats except for our team who's going to go get ready to serve you as we finish our service so that we can give next steps uh, directions to those of you who said yes to Jesus today, okay? So let's go ahead and say this prayer after me today. If this is you and you're saying, I need to say yes to Jesus today, I want you to do this with all your heart and with all boldness. Jesus, 
I surrender my life to you. I accept you as my savior. Knowing without you, this life has little purpose. And knowing with you, I have everything. I repent of my sins. I ask for forgiveness. Thank you for redeeming me and making me new. In Jesus' name.